Well, good morning. Welcome, uh, welcome back to the Parkway Church. My name is Jeff, one of the uh, pastors here. Uh, we have missed you. We're glad to be back together. And as we just read, uh, we started the book of 2 John last week. It's a very short book, only one chapter. And so today we will be in verses 4 through 6. And so as you make your way there on your phone or device or in your Bible, I want to tell you about a friend of mine named Brandon. We called him Brandon. That was his middle name, actually. His full name was actually Robert Brandon Barker. Robert Barker, Bob Barker. And uh, he didn't like to be called that, though. His name was Brandon. And uh, so I knew Brandon from a couple of places. I knew him from seminary. We were in seminary together at Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, And then I also knew him because we were on staff for uh, a few years at uh, a previous church. And so uh, Brandon was a good friend of mine, and uh, I love Brandon. I still love Brandon to this day. But Brandon was known for two idiosyncrasies. Uh, There were two things about Brandon that everyone who knew him knew about him. The first one was that he had these really strong but really wrong opinions about just about everything in his life. And uh, so I'll give you a few examples of it. His favorite TV show was Law and Order, which is no one's favorite TV show. He preferred coffee, I'm sorry, he preferred tea to coffee, which is a sin here in America, where this is not England. And uh, his uh, favorite condiment was ketchup, which might not be a bad thing, but he's the kind of guy who would put ketchup on steak and drown absolutely everything in it. And uh, so if he ordered like ketchup packets, he wouldn't ask for two or three or four or five, he would ask for like 15. And, uh, and so this was Brandon, his favorite beer was Bud Light. I'm not an expert on beer. Again, I know no one's favorite beer is, uh, is Bud Light. His favorite band was Nickelback. I'm just kidding. It was Creed. No, it wasn't that. I don't know what it was. Probably one of those because that was Brandon. He was the kind of guy that had these really strong opinions and he would fight you to the death on his opinions, but his opinions were always wrong. So that was the first thing that people knew about Brandon. The second thing that people knew about Brandon is that he had a, a tendency uh, toward verbal mishaps. I won't give you as many uh, instances uh, of that because most of them were accidentally inappropriate, but uh, I'll give you one instance of this. And so, uh, again, like I said, we were on uh, the church staff together, and so there was a time where a, a number of guys were sitting around on the church staff between meetings doing what guys do when they just have five, ten minutes on their hand. They're just talking about absolutely pointless conversation, all right? And, uh, and so at the time, what we were doing is we were trying to think of who are the consensus five best athletes on staff? Best all-around athletes on staff. Here at Parkway, that's pretty easy. Even Carl makes it into it because there's only five staff members. But at the previous church, uh, at the previous church that we worked at, there were a number of people there, and so it was a little bit harder. But after about 10 minutes of conversation, we came up with a consensus uh, top five. Now, Brandon was very upset because he was not included in that top five, and he thought that he should be included, and so the following conversation took place. So Brandon says, well, why am I not included in the top five? And so the response was, because you're not one of the best all-around athletes on staff. So he said, but, but I played college sports. And the response was, yeah, but you played college golf. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're a great all-around athlete. His response was, but I played professional golf. But again, that doesn't mean that you can necessarily run fast or jump high or throw the ball or whatever it might be. It's very impressive that you played pro golf, but that doesn't make you an all-around 
best athlete. It wasn't anything offensive to him, but he took offense at it. And so this conversation kept going on and on and on until finally he said something that has been seared in my memory. And so I'm going to try to reproduce it verbatim for you because it was so important that he said this phrase. That is that he said, I think if you take athleticism out of it, I'm one of the best athletes on staff. Have you ever heard something that you knew was so profound it changes your life? Like whenever your spouse says we're pregnant or your fiance says I do or something culture changing like that's one small step for man or I'm your huckleberry or something. I knew when I heard Brandon say if you take athleticism out of it, I'm the best athlete. I knew this was either the most profound and deep thing I'd ever heard, or it was completely nonsense. It was the latter, by the way. And, uh, and so that was Brandon. Uh, I actually talked to him this past week and uh, wanted to make sure that I could share this story and include his name. Uh, and, uh, and he said, not only could I do so, but he re- reiterated, and I, I wrote it down, he reiterated his belief that he was, quote, the most non-athletic athlete. Says Brandon, years ago, we're having a, a conversation. We're driving down. I had just graduated from uh, seminary, and so some uh, friends were taking me out uh, to dinner. And so we're, as we're driving, he says, 10 years from now, which is actually about 11 years ago that he said this. He said, 10 years from now, where do you want to be? What do you see yourself doing? And I thought about it for a second, and I said, you know, I just want to be faithful. And he said, I think I'm pretty faithful if you take faithfulness out of it. They didn't say that. But, uh, but really, actually, he kind of laughed at me. Later, he apologized and said, I think that's a pretty good answer. But that was my answer. I just said, I want to be faithful. And that should be all of our uh, answers. When it comes to any area of life, your answer should be, what do you want to be? I want to be faithful. But how are we faithful? What is the gauge? What's the standard? What's the canon by which faithfulness is measured? Well, our passage today is going to help us provide for us this principle by which we can ascertain whether or not we are actually being faithful. So let's pray, and then we'll dive into the passage together. As we often do, just ask you first to pray for yourself. Maybe you're anxious, maybe you're nervous, maybe you're a parent who's never had a preschooler in the room with you and you're a little anxious about how they're going to act or maybe you're distracted, whatever it might be, pray for yourself. And then would you pray for us collectively, not only the, the people in this room, but in the chapel and the fellowship hall and then also all of those who maybe are not quite ready to come back yet. As they listen to this, whenever that might be, that the Lord would give them grace and mercy. And then lastly, would you pray for me, for faithfulness, steadfastness. So Father, we ask for your help this morning because you have told us in your word that you delight to give your help. And so we ask that you would incline our hearts Open our eyes that we might behold the glories of your word, that you would unite our hearts to fear your name and satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love. We pray these things because you're good and you do good, and so we ask in Christ's name, amen. We'll start in 2 John verse 4, which says this, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. So I want to begin by asking this question. If I were to ask you, what brings you joy? How would you answer that? 
What is it that brings you joy? What is it that delights you? What is it that you find pleasure in? If utopia for you, if your idea of kind of the dream world, what brings you the most joy, it's kind of this idea of staying at home for weeks on end with your kids with no break whatsoever while the world goes crazy hoarding toilet paper, then you've been in a dream world the past couple of months. For the rest of us, if you like handshakes and hugs and high fives, you like to be around people or family or friends, you like to go to movies, you like to go out to restaurants, you like vacations, you like anything that's actually fun, this has been a bit rough. But what is it that makes the apostle tick? What is it that makes the apostle John, what is it that brings him joy and delight? Well, he tells us, he says, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. Now, before we talk about what that means, I want to address what this doesn't mean. This doesn't necessarily mean that some of them weren't walking in the truth. That's not his point at all. His point is just simply that some of the people are walking in the truth, whether or not all of them uh, are. So don't read something into the text that the author doesn't intend. John has learned somehow that at least some of these people were being faithful, were walking in the truth, and this brings him joy. In fact, as we'll read in a, in a few weeks, the, he has no greater joy than this. Third John 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. By the way, this should be the heartbeat of all pastors, of all people in ministry, more than anything else, this should be what a pastor wants for his people, for his congregation. Not that they be healthy, not that they be wealthy, not that they be successful in the world's eye or have a really big 401k or whatever it might be, but that they walk in the truth. That's what pastors do. You ever wonder what pastors do all day between the golf and the potluck dinners or whatever it might be. Well, if he's a faithful pastor, this is what he does. He helps people walk in the truth. When we meet with people, we're discussing truth, we're talking theology, we're talking about how the Bible is brought to bear on our lives. When we're not meeting with people, we're praying or we are uh, prepping to preach or to teach or something like that, which is about truth. And I say this not, it's just my personal opinion. I personally think that this is what pastors should do, but because this is by far the most pervasive charge in all of the pastoral epistles. When the Apostle Paul writes a pastoral epistle, that's the books of uh, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, when he writes these books about what life as a pastor should look like, by far the most common command regards theology and teaching and preaching. More than anything else, Paul tells Timothy and Titus to teach and to guard doctrine. Lest you think I'm over-exaggerating, what I want to do is I want to read off a whole host of passages so you can see how prevalent this command is. My goal in this is to kill a horse and then to begin to kick it for your edification. So let's look at 1 Timothy 1, 3, the very beginning of the book, as I urged you. When I was going to Macedonia, remained at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. 1 Timothy 3, 2, requirements for elders or pastors. Therefore, an overseer, elder, pastor, all the same office, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. 1 Timothy 4.1, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. 
First Timothy 4.16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. First Timothy 6, 20 through 21, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the truth. By the way, when it uses the word deposit there, that's the deposit of apostolic truth. You'll see that throughout the pastoral epistles. Second Timothy 1, 13 through 14, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Second Timothy 2, 1 through 2, you then my child be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You getting a sense of this? Keep going, 2 Timothy 2, 15, do your best to present yourself to, one, uh, to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 25, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth truth and wander off into myths. Titus 2.1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Titus 2.15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. There are others that I could mention, but the point is that this should be the heartbeat of the pastoral office, the heartbeat of pastoral ministry. The heartbeat of the church should be gathered around this idea of preaching and teaching and theology and doctrine. These are good things. These are necessary things. These are, in Paul's idea, the most important things that he is commending to pastors. But not only did Paul command these things, not only did he talk the talk, but he also walked the walk. Look at Acts 20, 26 through 28. This is Paul talking to the elders at Ephesus as he departs from them. He says, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. What does it mean for a pastor to faithfully discharge his duties toward his congregation? Declaring the whole counsel of God. If this is what it means to be innocent of the blood of your people, I'm afraid a lot of pastors on the day of judgment will be guilty of their people because they're not committed to preaching and teaching and theology and doctrine and so forth. Now, what does this have to do with 2 John? Last week, we saw the word truth four times in just three verses. The first three verses of 2 John has the word truth four times. This week, we see it again. Truth is a very Johannine word. In fact, about 50% of all the uses of the word, the Greek word for truth, uh, in the New Testament are in John's writings, in the Gospel of John and in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. You're probably familiar with a number of these uses, uh, especially in the Gospels. Jesus is said to be full of grace and truth. We're called to worship in spirit and truth. 
The word of God is called truth, both the incarnate word, who is Christ, the son, and also the inspired word, which is scripture. Jesus is called the way, the truth, and the life. The Holy Spirit is called the spirit of truth. Here's why I mention this, because as we move forward in the letter of 2 John, we actually won't encounter this explicit word truth again, but the concept of truth permeates the entire book. Every single verse is built upon the foundation of the centrality of truth for the Christian, for the church. This will be particularly relevant as we consider where the passage is going to go as we consider this call to love one another because as we will see, truth then becomes a filter by which we gauge or assess whether or not we're actually carrying out that command, whether or not what we're doing is actually loving or if it just feels like love or it just looks like love. So we absolutely should be people who love one another, as we'll see, but also people who love truth because we love Jesus. You can't love Jesus and then be disinterested in truth because Jesus is truth. As Jesus is the personification of love, so he is also the personification of truth. So with that in mind, that foundation, let's keep going and look at verse 5. 2 John 5 says, and now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. Well, who's this lady? We talked about this a bit last week and saw that this isn't a literal lady. Zach talked about how some people would say her name is elect. Other people have said her name is lady. Uh, But that's not what this is uh, uh, referring to. The the term lady here is not referring to a, uh, a particular literal lady, but instead it's being used figuratively for a congregation or a church. This, by the way, fits right in with the rest of the Bible. Israel is des- uh, described as a woman or a bride in the Old Testament, as is the church. The church is called the bride of Christ. Even in John's own writings, Jesus is described as the bridegroom and his people are uh, considered the bride. And in Revelation, you see this uh, picture of two cities. You have Babylon and you have Jerusalem, both of whom are pictured as these two contrasted Women, the people of God and the people of the world. So it seems like John is doing something similar here in 2 John. We actually see two women in this book representing two congregations or churches in two areas. One that he's writing to, that's the dear lady in this verse, and the other one, the church that he's writing from that we'll see in 2 John 13, which says, the children of your elect sister greet you. So John is writing from one church to another and uses lady as figurative imagery Those churches are like brothers and sisters. That's kind of the the imagery there. And John writes that this isn't a new commandment. This isn't a new commandment, but rather a commandment that's from the beginning. And we talked about a very similar verse back in 1 John. 1 John 2, verse 7 says, Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. Similar sort of idea. The commandment here in 2 John is the same commandment, by the way, as in 1 John. In the greater context, it is that we love one another. 1 John 3, 23. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. 1 John 4, 21. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And John says this is not a new commandment. By that, he means that this isn't new information. Anyone who's read the Old Testament 
or anyone who's familiar with the Gospels should be familiar with this idea of love. No one with any familiarity whatsoever to Christianity or to the Bible will hear this and go, wait a second, you mean I'm supposed to love one another? My mind is literally blown by that. I had no idea whatsoever. The reason is because this command is so prevalent. It's interwoven throughout the entire Bible. In fact, it will be described as the fulfillment of all the other commandments, of the Ten Commandments, of all the Mosaic Law, of the prophets, of the wisdom literature, all can be kind of summed up in this command that we would love one another. That's the Apostle Paul's point in a number of places. Romans 13, 8 through 10, which we walked through a couple of years ago. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Or Galatians 5.14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word or one phrase, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So John is reminding us of something that we already know even if we never fully fulfill, but we already know that we should love one another. By the way, by this he means that we should love one another within the church, other Christians in particular. The Bible does tell us to love our enemies. The Bible certainly tells us to love our families. That's not the point of this particular passage though. Here the focus is love within the church, love for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. If you can't love your brother and sister in Christ, how in the world are you ever going to fulfill the command to love your enemies. Now, if you were paying attention as we walk through 1 John over the past year, you're probably a little bit tired of hearing about loving one another since it kind of came up just about every week or every other week over the past year. Well, this will actually, actually be the last explicit reference to loving one another in 2nd or third John. So stay with me. This is kind of our last grasp effort to explicitly go into this because this is where the text goes. So hang in there. We spent the past year working through questions like what constitutes love? Is love just a feeling of affection? Is it just action that's devoid of affection, devoid of any feeling? Is it just mere begrudging duty? And for a working definition, we kind of said that love entails a warm regard or concern for others as you do what is best for them, even when it costs you. I don't think we have that to put up on the screen. I got it uh, added to my notes too late, but I'll say it again. Love entails a warm regard or concern for others as you do what is best for them, even when it costs you. So we spent a lot of time talking about serving one another and sacrificing for one another and the the importance of selflessness and humility and so forth. So this morning, rather than simply regurgitating all of the things that we've already said in 1 John, I wanna concentrate on another nuance of love that we see in this text by asking the question, how? How do we love one another? What does that actually mean? And this is really important because really walking through what we mean by love and how do we love and who do we love is the essence of discipleship. And that's what the church is about. The mission of the church is that we would go and make disciples. So in essence, what we're doing is teaching people who and how and what to love. By the way, those of you, those of you who have children, you know this is true as well. What is parenting? Parenting is basically teaching your kids what and who and how to love. That's it. 
parenting basically boils down to those sort of things. You're in essence teaching your kids who and what and how to love. When you tell your kid not to hit or not to bite their sibling, what are you doing? You're teaching them who and how to love. Who to love? Love your sibling, love others, love your family. How to love? By being kind and gentle, by not biting, by not hitting, by not stabbing with a pencil. When you discipline your kids, what are you doing? You're teaching them to love, to love obedience and to love authority. By the way, the opposite is also true. If you fail to discipline your kids, if you fail to correct them, you are also teaching them and you're also teaching them to love. You're just teaching them to love themselves. You're teaching them to love rebellion. You're teaching them to love to disdain authority and so forth. When you tell your kids to share, you're teaching them to love others and to love generosity and selflessness. When you tell them not to lie, you're teaching them to love the truth and so forth. On and on we could go. That's what parenting is and that's what discipleship is as well. As an apostle, John is writing this letter to a congregation to teach his people, to teach his children, his spiritual children, who and how and what to love. He's telling them to love God and to love others and to love the truth, but how? How do we do those things? And that's what's really fascinating about this passage So let's keep going and look at verse six. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is his commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Thus far with what we've said, nothing should be that surprising. There should be no one who really disagrees with much of what we've said. Even if you're Jewish or you're Muslim or you're Mormon, or if you're Christian, you agree that truth is important and that we should love one another. These are kind of universally held truths. But here, in this particular passage, is where the text begins to bend in a particular direction that is uniquely Christian. And it begins to uh, kind of divide the way that the world understands love from the way that Christians understand love. In fact, as I'll argue, it also divides even churches. Even within Christianity, there is this huge divide between how some people think love is best exhibited and expressed and how others think love is exhibited and expressed. But before we see how that plays out in, uh, in the culture, let's branch out a bit and see why this is so controversial in our larger culture. There are no Christians who would say that love is unimportant. There are no people probably uh, in the world that you would tend to meet, your neighbors, whether they're Christian or not, who would say that love is unimportant. And yet when you ask them to define what love actually entails, there is a huge difference of opinion, even within the church, uh, in particular within the larger culture. So let's begin by kind of acknowledging our culture is obsessed with the concept of love. It's in our movies, it's in our books, It's in the songs that we sing, all you need is love. What's love got to do with it? I wanna know what love is. I'm addicted to love. We love love. The problem is we just don't know what it actually is. Perhaps no English word or concept is so misunderstood and misapplied as love. Our culture is basically doing what I like to call pulling a brand in, right? I'm very loving. If you take actual love, out of it, but that's not how love works. You and I don't get to redefine love, God already has. Unfortunately, that's exactly what our culture attempts to do. Where do you see this? What are some examples of this? Where you see this absolutely everywhere? 
You see it in these huge culture-dividing questions like what is most loving, what is most faithful, what is most gracious and most kind to tell someone who struggles with something like gender dysphoria, who feels like a man trapped in a woman's body or vice versa. Is it loving to tell them to be whomever they feel like or whoever they want to be or whoever the world says or is that actually unloving according to Scripture? Or what about homosexuality? Is it loving to tell people to love whomever they want? Or is it loving to call those who struggle with same-sex attraction to faith and repentance? According to culture, if you really love someone, you will let them sleep with or marry whomever they want. But is that actually loving? Or is that actually unloving? Is that actually hateful? The same question comes up in discussions on abortion and immigration and capital punishment and welfare and so forth, which is one of the reasons why we're spending so much time in theological equipping next semester talking about these social and political issues so that we might think biblically about these questions of politics and ethics. But notice what's happening here. In each of these cases and dozens of others, by the way, the world redefines love in such a way that people are encouraged to do the very opposite of what is biblically most loving. And what is actually biblically most loving, most kind, is called intolerant or bigoted or unkind. Now, if that was just the secular culture, that would be one thing. We would understand that. But unfortunately, this redefinition of love has even permeated the church and it divides churches with different perspectives on divorce and remarriage or church discipline or gender roles or race relations or social justice or whatever it might be. The one positive to this whole COVID thing was for a brief moment in time, Christians weren't arguing about all the things that Christians tend to argue about online. But most of those arguments boil down to this. When it comes to defining what is and is not faithful, what is and is not just, what is and is not loving, will we allow our feelings to lead the way or will we allow the truth of Scripture to be our ultimate authority? Let me give you an illustration of what this whole phenomenon feels like, this phenomenon of calling something love and then therefore claiming that it's loving. I think we've mentioned before that George Washington died from an infection that was treated with uh, uh, exsanguination. So he was actually bled to death by doctors. This was a common practice back then. The average man has like five to six liters of blood in his body. And over the span of a few hours, Washington was drained of four liters. Why? Because according to prevailing sentiments, according to the prevailing wisdom, the best doctors and scientists of the day, bloodletting was this really helpful method of curing most infections or most ailments. So you would use leeches or you would cut someone who was sick in the thought that this will actually help them get better. So you'd go to your barber of all people. That's actually what barbers used to do. Most barbers were surgeons, which makes a lot of sense. And so your barber thought this was a good idea. This was the prevailing wisdom of the day. And yet, obviously, we know that's not a good idea. That's not wise to drain four liters of blood from a person to treat an, uh, an infection. But that's the illustration of what this question of redefining love reminds me of. Christians who love Scripture, Christians who love others, are begging the world to not drain the sick. But what's the response? 
You just don't care about those in bad marriages. You just don't care about those who struggle with same-sex attraction. You don't care about the poor. You don't care about racial reconciliation. Of course we care. That's why we're saying put down the leeches. That's not loving. Science and medicine have demonstrated that bloodletting isn't the best treatment. We all know that. But how do we know whether some random action is actually loving or not? The Bible tells us to love one another. There's dozens upon dozens upon dozens of passages that would say that. But how do we know how to love one another when it comes to these issues, these things that cultures and even churches debate? Is it just popular opinion? The majority rules, sort of base democracy. If the majority of the population or the majority of the culture says something or holds something, it must be right. Well, obviously that's silly. But what, is it, what about, is it just up to the individual? Is it all relative and subjective? Whatever feels nice, whatever feels kind, whatever feels loving, whatever is most politically correct, that's just as silly. You see how well that goes for Israel in the book of Judges? In those days, there was no king and what? Anybody remember? Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. That might sound like a good thing. Have you ever read Judges? It's not a good thing at all. You and I make horrible kings. So if you can't rely on the size of the crowd or the strength of your own feelings, what do we do? This passage tells us. It says, what is love that we walk according to God's commandments? That's it. If you want to know what is most loving in any situation, it's always to do what is most faithful to the Word of God. That's it. It might not feel like it. It might actually feel harsh or cruel or oppressive or antiquated, but that's not because it actually is. It's because your feelings are off. It's kind of like someone complaining about the quality of the picture on their brand new TV because they refuse to put on their prescription Lenses, the problem isn't the TV, it's you. Likewise with Scripture. So you see here, there's this inherent connection that John is drawing for us between love and truth. Walking in truth and walking in love overlap. They go hand in hand. Indeed, they are inseparable. Yes, the Bible says that we are to love one another. And yes, that is the primary application of this passage. But don't be so quick to jump to application because you first need to ask the question, what is loving? What is actually loving? And in order to answer that, you can't listen to your culture, you can't listen to your feelings, but rather to the word. You can't know how to love others without knowing the Bible. You can't know the will of God without knowing the word of God. You just end up cutting someone and calling it love all the while they're bleeding out. So I want to begin to wrap up our time together by just encouraging some introspection. We've, we've, we've all been apart for a while now. Uh, we've been locked in our rooms. And so I think it's time for a little bit of introspection to give us some opportunity to repent where necessary. In a moment, we're going to take communion as we repent, as we prepare our hearts for that. And so before we get to the question of how we're doing in regards to actually loving one another, I want to ask the question, how are we doing in regards to actually loving truth and loving Scripture? So let me ask you a couple of questions. Are there any truths of Scripture that you're embarrassed by? We ask this question every once in a while. It's good just to bring it up again. What do you attempt to explain away? What truth do you come to that you say, well, yes, the Bible says that, but 
I don't really like it. It makes me feel a little weird. Or what theological convictions do you find unloving? You think that they're true, you just think they're harsh or mean or repressive or oppressive. Do you think church discipline is mean? Or what the Bible says about divorce and remarriage or what it says about sexuality or gender roles or disciplining your children? Where do you hear what scripture says but for whatever reason, you just don't like it. You just think or feel that some other approach is better. It's more loving, it's more gracious, it's more kind. Now, if any of that resonated with you at all, where that is the case, will you repent this morning? Will you confess to the Lord that you don't agree with him, that you think you know better than him, that your perception of love is influenced more by your feelings or Taylor Swift or the, whatever it might be, then it is the word of God. And thus, will you confess that your ability to love others is restricted, it's limited, it's bounded, it's distorted? And will you commit to getting help to love God's correctly so you might love others correctly? Maybe that means you talk to somebody in your community group or one of our staff or elders or something like that. With that in mind, let's move on now to the question of love. We've talked about truth. Let's talk about love. There's been this profound reorientation of what it means to love, at least physically, tangibly, in the midst of this pandemic. For most of our lives, how have we shown love? Well, handshakes and hugs and kisses and visiting the sick and visiting the elders. And now these things will get you slapped or fined. Historically, what would you say if someone told you that the best way for you to love them was to wear a mask around them, to wash your hands, to not touch them, and to stay six feet away from them? You would think, that's kind of insulting, right? So the expressions of love, the external actions of love can often vary as circumstances change, but at its root is a heart that is marked not only by theological conviction, Yes and amen to that, but conviction that's overflowing in selflessness and humility and sacrifice for the sake of others. Throughout 1 John, that's what we saw that love entailed. Not just warm and fuzzy feelings, but a commitment to sacrificially serve others. So here's my big question for you this morning. For those who are members, for those who've been here for most of the, the past year, we've spent the better part of the past 52 weeks considering the call to love one another. So my question is, has that actually taken root in your heart? Has that actually taken root in your life? Or are you just agreeing in principle without actually applying these things? Are you actually growing in love for others when it comes to your time, your finances, when your possessions, do you sacrificially serve others? And if you're honest with yourself, you probably find that even if you answer that question yes, that you're growing in love for others, there's still a lot of growing to do. I hope, I doubt and I hope that no one in this room would think I've arrived. I have been perfected in love and I am now the most loving person I possibly could do. So what do you do in light of that? Here's where we need to remember that this command comes in a larger context. To read this command that tells us to love one another devoid of this greater context 
leads only to exalting ourselves for our alleged successes or giving into despair for our inevitable failures. So I want to encourage you not to do either. Not to exalt yourself for how well you're doing or to condemn yourself for how poorly you're doing, but instead to bear in mind the context, which is that your ultimate hope is not found in the love that you give others or the love that they give you. You will fail in fulfilling this command to love others a million times over, and yet your security is no less assured because your confidence shouldn't be tied at all to your love. You will never love God or love others perfectly, but Christ has loved you perfectly. And that love is not only the foundation for your hope, but also the fuel for your love. When we know that we are loved, when we truly believe that, when we treasure that, when we rest in that, we're free not to chase after the things that the world loves, but instead to sacrifice ourselves in serving others. So I want to end by rereading a passage from 1 John we preached a couple of months ago that kind of reminds us of this proper order of love. Yes, we are to love others, but only because we have first been loved. First John 4, 9 through 11. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be, notice this phrase, the propitiation for our sins. That includes your current apathy, your current resentment, your current lack of forgiveness, your current hatred, your current selfishness, your current greed, your current pride, your current inability to apply this passage, your current unlove. He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, Therefore, then we also ought to love one another. Even when it comes to your lack of love, Jesus is the propitiation, the satisfying, sufficient sacrifice. And that's good news. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for an opportunity for us to be reoriented to the foundation, the importance of theology and doctrine and truth. And I pray that you would have not only our minds marked by this ability to see truth clearly, but our hearts marked by a desire to actually love others, to actually lay down our own rights and privileges and preferences for the sake of others, that that would mark this little church, that more than we would be known for our theological acumen, that we would be known for our deep holiness marked by a love for one another. So I pray that you would continue, Lord, to be faithful to us because you've promised in your word that you would and you would help us to be faithful to you. We pray these things because you're good and you do good. You're a good father who gives good gifts and we celebrate that as we partake of communion and we pray these things in Christ's name, amen.